Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Well, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much. So let's start with a bit about your background. And I, I am also a vegetarian. So can you <laughs> tell me why um, being a vegetarian makes you qualified to be a diversity trainer? <laughs> I can tell you why I thought it made me qualified. <laughs> uh, it was just because I had that really mainstream idea of what it meant to be racist you know you were conservative and old school and you know you lived in the middle of the midwest or the deep south and and i was a progressive you know left wing all of that i mean i was honestly i've been a vegetarian for about 40 years and that's very progressive right so i i mean i'm being facetious but it was part of this idea that to be alternative meant I couldn't be racist. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you talk to folks about your background with, the, I think it was the Washington state. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like how did you kind of get into this from on the professional side? You know, I mean, it, all of these, all of the ways I'll tell this story and I'll make it brief. Um, they're all connected to kind of what it means. So first of all, I did grow up in poverty. And so I was very late to academia. I was uh, a single mother. I was uh, in uh, my early 30s before I went to college. I graduated, you know, double major history, sociology. I don't know what I can do for a living. (laughs) Um, And then I saw this job for diversity trainer, as it was called then. It was the early 90s. And I just thought, oh, how cool and how fun and who doesn't love that kind of thing? And I'm qualified. And what it was is that the welfare department or Department of Social and Health Services had been sued for racial discrimination. And contrary to what I think of as white mythology, (laughs) it's really hard to win a racial discrimination lawsuit because you have to prove intent. I mean, you really couldn't come up with a better way to say that racism or racial discrimination is illegal, but make it almost impossible to ever, you know, persecute because it's, or excuse me, prosecute (laughs) because it's, uh, has, you have to prove intent. But DSHS was found to be way out of compliance. So um, as part of the settlement, the federal government mandated that 5,000 employees in the state of Washington, where I lived, had to have 16 hours of mandated diversity training. And I thought it would be fun. And I was qualified. And I mean, right there, I hope you're realizing I was in for the most profound um, experience of my life because the first thing was that I wasn't remotely qualified and because it was such a big training they hired 40 trainers and they put us in interracial groups uh, you know teams and so we had to go through a five-day train the trainer so there I was in a room that was 50 50 um, racially integrated and people of color were challenging the hell out of us out of the white trainers and i had never in my life been challenged racially certainly not sustained and not by a significant number of people of color so that was like part one of of what i see as a parallel process really having my racial worldview challenge and I wouldn't have been able to tell you I had a racial worldview, right? I was just a person. 
So that was like a fish being taken out of water. I'll never forget the afternoon of the first day when the room was so tense because I am sure the people of color were just, here we go again, the mediocrity of these white people. Because we turned to them and said, okay, this is the part where you teach us about racism. You know, notice that it, it didn't even phase us that, well, we had just been hired to do that for other people. But of course, why should I know about racism? And they were like, oh, hell no. And we were like, well, then how are we supposed to know? And it was just, you know, classic. And at one point in this very heated, tense room between the white trainers and the trainers of color, this white woman, who I now realize was much further along than I was, calls out all the white racists, raise your hand. And all these white people raised their hand. And I'm, I just looked around and was like, oh, my God, I'm not raising my hand. I'm not racist. And I just sat there thinking, well, you know, I showed them that I was the good one, which is ironic, of course, because what I showed them is that I didn't understand what racism was and that the very thing that I thought would qualify me were not actually communicating that. So um, that was, you know, kind of part one. I, let me be really clear. Today, I would raise my hand um, because I have a very different understanding of what that means. And I also realized what a brilliant move she made because in one second she surfaced visibly for the, for the people of color to see uh, where the white people were at. Part two was going into overwhelmingly white workplaces and the hostility was jaw-dropping and the meanness and, and being oftentimes the only person of color in the room was the person standing next to me. And they were, they were just so thoughtless and cruel, to be really honest, in, a, in that classic white obliviousness cruelty. And I would drive home with that person and see the pain and hear about it. And you put those two things together, my own transformation in consciousness and then trying day in and day out to communicate that to other people who didn't actually want to uh, understand it. And I got better and better. And five years later, there were only two trainers left out of 40. And I was the white one. <laughs> uh, and I just realized that was extraordinary. That wasn't, I mean, who, what white person for a living day in and day out, tries to talk to other white people about racism. I mean, most of us have tried to avoid that, like the plague, right? <laughs> so I thought I want to have a larger impact from all I've learned, and I went on to got my PhD. So I went from practice to theory, not theory to practice like a lot of academics. You know, one of the things I was excited about this holidays, you know, holidays recently is talking to my family, I think, about race and whiteness but i was like you know there's no conservatives that are going to be around i don't have i have one conservative i think everyone has a conservative uncle um so i was like this will be you know i'm kind of disappointed because i won't get to talk about race and uh whiteness and white fragility huh. um and you know uh, of course i i should have you know, I, I actually should have known better because you know i have the classic good good person, open-minded, liberal, progressive, voted for Bernie, yep. uh, voted for Obama. Um, so can you talk about why it's possible to hold those identities as like a Bernie liberal yep. marched in the 60s voter and then be racist? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I just have to say, that's all you have to do. Bring it up with that so-called progressive family and, and you'll see all the moves. And you may not see them the first time you bring it up, but just stay on it, right? It doesn't take much. And really, to be honest, it doesn't take much to erupt, not just the cluelessness and the, you know, I just taught to treat everyone the same and all those vapid, empty uh, narratives, but actually to trigger um, resentment uh, and anger, and to be really honest, anti-blackness. It's roiling right below the surface for most white people. Uh, I think you saw it in the Bernie uh, talk here in Seattle when uh, you know two black women just said, "Can we have four minutes of silence for?" Um, I think it was Michael Brown at that time, and the crowd. Um, you know, that resentment did erupt, right? So we have to change what we understand it means to be racist or what a racist is. So we're taught to see a racist as an individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race and who intentionally would be mean to them. Uh, that would be somebody probably wearing a hood, although what we need to understand is the white nationalist movement is growing and recruiting, and they know better than to, to, to you know, openly uh, use racist rhetoric, right? Um, so you have to understand racism as a system, and it's the system we're all in. So none of us could be exempt from its forces. It's embedded in language. And if you don't know how it's embedded in language, that's fine, but that doesn't mean it isn't. That means it's on you to educate yourself about how it's embedded in language and how language shapes perceptions and how it's embedded in curriculum and schools and really in segregation. How, how active uh, segregation actually is. Most uh, white people live segregated lives, even in major cities uh, like New York and San Francisco. And um, of course, as soon as I say that, I think most white people who live in San Francisco realize that it's not any longer a, a very diverse city, right? But nonetheless, um, we're taught to think about race as only at play when people of color are present, right? And so if people of color aren't present, then race isn't happening. So we'll say things like, oh, I grew up in a white neighborhood. I don't know anything. And it's like, no, your, your white neighborhood, actively, every moment we spend in white space is shaping us and reinforcing a white worldview, right? Apathy. It's, uh, it's reinforcing probably the most profound thing it reinforces is that there's no actual loss in segregation. Those are the deeper, quote unquote, subtle messages, because subtle from whose perspective. I'm never going to say the N-word, and either is, neither is anybody in your family going to say the N-word, but I bet they live profoundly segregated lives. And so they can't help but have an incredibly limited understanding. Yet, part of our socialization is to engender a deep sense of certitude and lack of humility and, and arrogance. Uh, I don't know if that's speaking to... Uh. <laughs> yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, one of the, the sort of specific examples, so um, is I have a Jewish male member, Jewish white male, uh -huh. my family and a gay white man <laughs> and they um 
I, so there's, you can talk about like holding, having a um, marginalized identity and then believing you, you have like, then you're progressive on race. Like maybe you could talk about that. And oh, then, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a couple things. One is I th- believe it's Pat Parker who, who basically says, you give me any situation and you put some color on it and it'll be worse. I don't know, for example, how any white person can think that to grow to be poor and white would be the same experience as to be poor and black, because you might be dealing with classism. You are not also dealing with racism, and your whiteness is actually going to help you navigate classism, right? And one place to get at it is I just ask the question, okay, say you have a white gay male, so what does anti-blackness look like in the white gay male community? Uh, What does anti-blackness look like among Ashkenazi Jews of European descent? Because it's there. And I think for me, it's undeniable that it's there. The reason I use anti-blackness as the example is that I do believe in the white mind, black people are the ultimate racial other. That does not mean other groups of color, all people who are not perceived or defined as white experience racism in both shared ways and very specific ways based on their racialization. But anti-blackness, I think, cuts across all groups, even black people, the darker you are, right, the more intense. So when I have a really short period of time with white people and I want them to get in touch with that early internalization that there is a racial other and they're fundamentally different from you and honestly fundamentally uh, less than you, I have people think about blacks, black people. So I would ask those questions. What does anti-blackness look like among Ashkenazi Jews of European descent? <laughs> um, there's even a, 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 a Yiddish word uh, that I'm not going to say, but they have a Yiddish word for the N-word, right? They, they know it. Look on uh, apps and dating sites and you will see. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, the thing I was trying to explain to my relatives was it's sort of like the um, the police, like if you're driving by in a car, would the police pull you over? Like they're not going to say, oh, that's a Jewish man or that's right. a, a gay man. Like you're still benefiting from dominant white culture, even though you hold that identity. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think what I try to help people do is now go the step further, right? And ask yourself, what kind of patterns do you have as a result of this oppression? Because it is, you know, yes, you know, uh, heterosexism is oppression and so is anti-Semitism and so is classism and sexism. These are forms of oppression, but they can actually cause us to collude with other forms from which we benefit. And so I often use the example of growing up in poverty as a uh, cisgender, I'm cisgender female, and even right there, I have privilege in that way, but I also experience sexism and patriarchy and Catholic, right? So what what were the messages I got? As, yeah, well, <laughs> but as a raised, I, that was later in life, you know, as a little Catholic girl who grew up poor, what messages did I get? I got be silent, be subservient, be submissive, sacrifice, suffer, (laughs) suffer in silence, 
do not question authority, do not question the authority of men or priests who are men, right? I mean, I think you can see that those are the messages I got. So now I'm sitting in an academic meeting and I recognize that the way we're talking about this new hire or potential hire is, is racist. Like, there's racism in here. But I am intimidated to speak up because I feel at a very core level inferior to my colleagues. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but internally I feel like an imposter in academia, right? But when I, so, so it's actually a sense of inferiority that's keeping me silent in those moments. I'm not sitting there feeling superior. I'm feeling inferior, but I'm noticing racism and I'm afraid to speak up. When I stepped out of myself and I asked, so how's it functioning in the room? Regardless of what's driving your silence, how's it functioning? Oh my God, it's functioning to uphold uh, white supremacy. And in fact, you're going to benefit from your silence. You're going to be seen as a team player. Uh, you're going to get ahead. Uh, you know, you want to get ahead in academia, don't bring up racism. I mean, seriously, you probably want to get ahead anywhere, don't bring up racism. So when I thought about it like that, I realized, oh my God, you know, my oppression is causing me to collude with somebody else's. And you know what? It's a lie that I'm not as smart as those people. It's a lie that they're somehow inherently better than me because they went to Ivy League boarding schools and, you know, always thought they'd be at this table. So when I speak up, I'm actually simultaneously healing the lie of my inferiority while using my privileged position to challenge and break with a place where I experience superiority. You know, you can and do experience both superiority and inferiority. They're not mutually exclusive. I think that's what we have to understand, those of us who uh, understand oppression in a different axis. You know, you mentioned the word white supremacy, which I want to double click on, because I think that that's, um, that's a term that I've been trying to, and you have a great article, I think it's entitled, No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and it feels like the term white supremacy is the term that white people are most uncomfortable with. Like it's sort yeah. of like apotheosis of like, oh my God, maybe it's equal to racist, I'm not sure. But um, I get so much pushback about white supremacy like can you just call it like white superiority or white dominance or why do we have to talk about white supremacy isn't that about nazis so can you talk yeah. about like what you're talking about when you say white supremacy yeah and uh, although i'd be surprised if they don't want you to say white superiority i bet you that one's in that list too of like don't say that well notice a couple things notice where it puts the emphasis so um it puts the emphasis on what is usually invisible, whiteness. And that is incredibly uncomfortable because we're not used to that, right? When we talk about segregation, we're talking about this tragedy imposed on blacks in the Jim Crow South. We're not used to thinking about uh, segregation as something white people choose for themselves and then celebrate by talking about how great their schools and neighborhoods are precisely because they're segregated. You know, one of the ways that whiteness stays um, centered is by being unmarked and unnamed, right? So when you talk about race, we're going to talk about their race, not our race, right? So white supremacy, one way that it's unsettling is that it, it shifts the uh, focus onto whiteness and, and begins to make it visible, which is very uncomfortable. But also, uh, it is traditionally associated with supreme, uh, excuse me, 
extremists wearing hoods. Um, and so you've kind of got at the conscious level, you've got what I'm not, I would never wear a hood. And at the unconscious level, you've got don't name whiteness going on. I think that there's actually many things that go on for us, not one single thing, but all of those together make us irrational <laughs> uh, and kind of um, mean, right, on, on this topic. If you understand white supremacy as a highly descriptive sociological term for the society we live in, it's actually not even a stretch. We live in a society that positions white people as the norm for humanity. Uh, Adam and Eve, you know, the Sistine Chapel with God creating man, all of our teachers and heroes and heroines, um, the most beautiful women in the world, you know, is this the scientifically perfect face? Um, next, uh, you know, top five runners up for Miss Teen USA, you know, they're, they're going to be white, 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 white. So the constant message is, white is the human ideal. Um, uh, Spike Lee will always be a black filmmaker, but Robert Altman will just be a sp filmmaker. So it's this kind of anything that isn't white is a deviation and a deficient one, right? So white supremacy describes and captures the water we're in. Um, and so I get that it's associated at the conscious level with extremists, but what I would say to white people who take umbrage at the term is if you know my work, you know that when I identify as somebody who's been shaped by white supremacy, I'm clearly not a neo-Nazi, so you must be missing something. So how about you get up to date, <laughs> evolve, uh, try to figure out why people like me are using that term rather than don't use that term. It's not comfortable for me. And there's a great article by Robin D'Angelo called <laughs> No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. You know, can you just talk a little bit about, because sometimes I feel like there's a debate um, around whiteness and its role in to, to, like today's culture. And, you know, so I'm, there's sort of like, um, how the US was formed and sort of like the values and norms brought from Europe and like, can you talk about like how whiteness and white supremacy has maybe informed? Um, cause I guess like one of the arguments I've heard is that it's not about whiteness as the problem. I mean, it's one of the problems, um, but it's about elites holding the power and like there's a good overlap with whiteness, but it's not like whites are, are, are the cause of, of, like the most majority of problems. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in like how you see whiteness and the like umbrella of, of do you see it at the, at the top of the triangle that like which, which everything below is sort of like derives from or do you see it as one of sort of parallel many different things at the top that like causes a lot of the problems today? Hold that because you, you asked that really well and I want to speak to it but there was one piece I wanted to add to the sure. white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. When I go to conferences and there are people of color also speaking um often um they talk about the uh impact the trauma of racism on people of color and what i notice is that white people kind of love those talks and they uh you know kind of 
give a standing ovation, right? That there's, oh, I think it engenders a kind of benevolence. Isn't that sad? But then when you say, okay, and therefore on the other side of that, if somebody is elevated through that, suddenly like that, that I don't want to have. So we're comfortable looking at how racism uh, impacts people of color, but we don't want to look at how it, it, it necessarily therefore elevates us. I was at a, a conference where um, an uh, indigenous woman got up and shared about um, the trauma on, um, it was for childbirth educators, uh, on children. Uh, and then an uh, African-American woman got up and talked about the trauma on, you know, young black children. And then I got up and talked about white supremacy. The, the two women of color both got standing ovations. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I guess that's kind of the norm here. And then I gave my talk, nothing. And I'm Pin like, drop. huh, you know. Maybe it wasn't that good a talk, but I've been doing this long enough to, to think, nah, it was a good talk. <laughs> and then we had a panel moderated by a black woman, and she, she said she noticed, and actually that did not engender trust for her in the primarily white audience, that in fact watching how they kind of treated me and responded to me, um, re you know, kind of uncovered something uh, that their standing ovation for the woman of color didn't mask. Make sense? Absolutely. Because basically I broke with white solidarity and I got a social penalty for it. I mean, we're talking, I mean, at a certain level, I mean, standing ovation versus not, but I think it was pretty symbolic. I think a lot, if you ask a lot of people, white people, you know, how old is racism or where did racism start? I think you would get, it's always been there. People are uncomfortable with difference. There's this kind of belief that people just like to be with their own and, you know, this is natural. Um, and of course I challenge that because as long as uh, we've wanted to be with our own, they have wanted to be with us and we have not allowed that in many, many ways. But it actually, race is a very, very new idea, right? That, that people just couldn't travel to the degree for, for, you know, millennia that would allow them to see the kind of differences that we associate with race, right? So there were other axes on which people responded to difference, but it was not, it was not race. Race is a relatively new social contract. And I would highly recommend Charles Wright Mill's uh, award-winning book, The Racial Contract, where he talks about white supremacy is the social contract that has underwritten all others for the last several hundred years, but is never named or studied. So we'll study capitalism, fascism, socialism, but we don't study white supremacy, which underwrites all of those. Um, Ibram Kende, in his National Book Award winning book, Stamped from the Beginning, he makes the same uh, case that Tanahisi Coates makes. Coates puts it like this um, Racism is the parent, race is the child. So you have to sit with that for a minute. And what he's saying is you start always with the exploitation of a group of people who have resources that you want to exploit and you have the means to exploit. And then you make up a story to justify the exploitation. So the mass commodified capitalistic way of um, enslaving Africans 
was the exploitation and then race was the story made up to justify that in a nation that professed all men were created equal. So it, it's a very new idea. It co co you know corresponds with the beginning of this particular country. Um, and certainly they're the elites. I mean, if we were going to get into a pyramid, I suppose I would have to say that economic exploitation is always the basis. Um, but I don't want to um, ever have anybody think that that means class is the true oppression. And we need to talk about class because you can't at this point separate them. And that usually functions as a way to get race off the table. So. Today, I don't think they're separate, separable, separable. Yeah, and I've also heard you address this in your book and in the article about while the dominant racial and ethnic groups in other cultures may not be white, so like to Chinese ruling Tibetans, you yeah. do say there's nonetheless a global dimension of white supremacy through mass media, corporate culture, yeah. advertising, U.S.-owned manufacturing. And so could you speak a little bit like, it might not be white people dominating people of color, but it's still white supremacy globally. Yeah, I mean, we have exported those ideas globally and impacted. I mean, is there any culture left that's not impacted, you know, um, anymore, right? And as we export our culture, we export white supremacy. I mean, not just in actually who we're at war with, uh, the way we handle war, uh, you know, who, who works in what, settings and context, but also um, through our films. I was just um, in Australia. I spent a month in Australia and I, maybe this is obvious, but I was kind of, oh, I mean, almost every film that they saw were our films, all their magazines, the stars and celebrities were from, you, you know, US. Um, and I actually think that our education system and Hollywood are the bellies of the beast. So when I say to you, I, as a result of being raised as a white person in this society, I have a racist worldview, um, and, and I do, it comes from my education in the school system and the consumption of Hollywood films and games and, you know, everything extended to marketing and advertising and media. Now, that's not because the people who control those two institutions are more racist than anybody else, but whenever you have that kind of homogeneity, which is you're going to embed your biases. I'm sure we've all seen ads that were just like, how could, how could they not notice how racist that ad was? Um, I, I think they didn't notice, right? Um, so we're exporting all of those messages across the world. I mean, many people who come here, immigrate from Asian countries say, I was afraid of black people before I ever came to the United States because I watch your movies, right? Um, number one, uh, cosmetic surgery in Asian countries is, is eyes, you know, changing eyes. Uh, to, just white as ideal has been exported globally and it, it impacts all cultures, right? Yeah. Answer that. Uh, you know, what, one, <laughs> one sort of way I've cooled off the discussion of white supremacy that it's, it's been effective is talking to white people about the messages that we don't ever doubt, like the idea of like, you grow up and like everyone says like, work hard, you know, like everyone gets a fair shot, um, you know, don't rock the boat. Uh, and so when you say, hey, you know, productivity and avoiding conflict and the idea that everyone gets a fair shot, um, 
those are actually part of white supremacy. It's not like you have to actively believe that a black person is inferior, but if you literally believe that everyone gets a fair shot and then you see a black person who is poor, then you must think that they're not working hard enough. Like that is the, the like process. Exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm going to trust that your listeners really want to be critical thinkers, right? So you have to look at these ideologies and ask yourself, how do they function? Not are they true or false? In other words, is it true or not that we're all individuals? I mean, we could go round and round. Uh, I tend to lean towards no. <laughs> I mean, I have things that characteristics, but even my desire to be different is because I was socialized in a culture that says it's good to be different. Otherwise, that would not be important to me in the same way, right? But nonetheless, when we when race gets on the table and we move to why can't we all be individuals, who or what does that serve? That is a question. And, and if that serves to open the exploration of race, then great. But I've never seen it open the exploration. I've seen it close. And our outcomes are not getting better. So if our outcomes aren't getting better and we keep going to individualism, then it, I guess individualism is functioning in a way that's protecting the racist status quo, not challenging it. We have to understand that the default is racism. The status quo is racism. And so anything that protects that, which a white silence would be an example, is racism right? Again, it's a really different way of thinking about it. So Ibram Kinde says that any policy whose outcome is racial inequality is a racist policy. So if you want to know what's the definition of a racist policy, a policy that results in, in racially inequitable outcomes. Because if you truly believe all people are equal, the only explanation for racially unequal outcomes is racism. Because if, you're, if you say that, well, everybody's equal, but they just don't value education, uh, even if you say everybody's equal, but it's a pipeline issue, they're not in the pipeline, you're still saying something's happening with or for them that's resulting in this. Therefore, they are deficient, as opposed to, well, what policies do we need to examine if they're not in the pipeline? Right. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. So I, I just repeat, if you truly believe all people are equal, the only explanation for unequal outcomes is racism and inequality, not something going on with that community. Yeah. Other than what those policies are doing to the community. Yes. The way I think about meritocracy is that um, we're all swimming right? And we're in the water. But if you've ever been in a current, you know that it impacts your efforts. I'm moving my arms, but I'm in a current that is impacting the outcome of my moving my arms. And when I'm swimming with the current, it's pretty fantastic if you've ever body surfed. When I'm swimming against the current, I'm moving my arms, but I'm, there's this constant resistance that impacts the outcome of my arm movements. So we have to understand racism in a way as occurrence in the water that are shaping. It does not mean I'm not working, but there's also an entire structure that is going to impact the outcome of that. And, you know, one of the terms that I've been really annoyed with used by my family and others in the, is political correctness. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's particularly insidious because, so a, 
you know, one of the stories was my uncle, a uh, very progressive gay uncle, was talking about how at a community college where he lives, uh, um, an African-American student had been called the N-word and there was a big uproar. And so they were having a meeting about it. And the white administrator in on like recounting the events had used the N-word in the sort of meeting about the event. And many people of color were actually offended by that secondary use of the N-word. And he was saying, oh God, there's so much political correctness. We can't even say it. And when we're talking about addressing it, and I'm like, you're missing this man. <laughs> like it's not about your belief that it's okay. That's a dominant worldview. Yeah. So can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Political correctness. First of all, language is political. Um, I, I do discourse analysis, critical discourse analysis, and I was raised to think of words and terms as simple descriptors uh, that, you know, allowed you to talk about a thing, right? And now I understand that those descriptors actually shape how I see that thing. And language will always be a site of struggle because of that, right? And the example I often use uh, for my age group is we had terms like bum, tramp, hobo, wino, and now we have homeless. And that has not ended homelessness, but it, it's radically different. So I'll often ask my students, if you worked with the homeless, would you put it on your resume? And they say, yes. And it's like, there's nothing you're going to put on your resume that doesn't make you look good. Why does it make you look good to work with the homeless? Trust me, when I was growing up, I wouldn't put, and I volunteered with tramps, bums, and winos. Right? Again, the power of language to invoke either compassion or um, mockery, right? And so for those of us who are served by language, again, you not seeing that it's harmful doesn't mean it isn't harmful. And so, yes, you do have to think about what you say. God, is that this so hard for you? Yes, saying retarded is hurtful. Don't say it, you know. Uh, it, it's the most minor thing that you're being asked to give up, right? And notice that I, I would imagine I'm not even going to say it, but your uncle who is gay would prefer that I, who am married to a man, don't use the F word, right? Uh, you know, if I'm an insider and he trusts me, but outside of that, my use of it is his assumption is going to be hostility, right? So sometimes you have to find something that he can relate to. And the N word just couldn't be any more harmful and it it just shouldn't come out of our mouths so um i guess what i would want to offer your uncle is what if you just tried to f understand why you couldn't use it in that context or why let's assume that it's actually legitimate that the people of color in that room who are so much less represented in your workplace why were they bothered by that as opposed to categorically they should not have been bothered by that you know i'm not going to say i don't have moments where i kind of sigh um <laughs> like okay i didn't get the gender pronouns right I, I, but that's my struggle not like therefore i shouldn't have to and you shouldn't expect it of me you know and one thing that sort of goes along with this is we're I'm part of a, a, a multiracial group who's thinking about organizing. Um, so the B Corp community is this movement for social enterprises. And 
we're thinking about organizing a a day of specifically talking about white supremacy, um, you know, led by people of color for a largely white upper class group of social entrepreneur progressives who think they're changing the world. And one question, this is, you know, just a actually personal question is like, what is your thoughts on like self-selection into a trainings on white supremacy versus like, this is a requirement of uh, attending this say upcoming conference. I'm kind of curious, like how do you, because you've had the sort of required Washington State experience versus self-selection. What, what is your thoughts on effectiveness? Yeah, well, that's a tough one because um, requiring just causes people to have so much resentment um, that it, 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 you can actually increase their resistance, right? Um, so what I uh, remember is a couple of things. One, tipping point theory, according to Malcolm Gladwell, is you only need 30%. That's actually really useful to me because I feel very discouraged. I'm going to be honest with you. I think most white people, including white progressives, don't care about racism, uh, especially if it's remotely inconvenient. Uh, if, if we have to take a minute to understand why using the N-word was uh, problematic, then, then it becomes inconvenient. Show me an image of somebody being beaten and I'll be upset about it and say that it's wrong. Uh, or you, you know, somebody calling the police on somebody at a pool, but me actually having to do anything to change my life, myself, my practice, I'm not doing it, right? So when I feel discouraged about that, I just remember you only need 30%, and I could probably do that. <laughs> so if this, if you self-selected and only got 30%, it it can change the culture, right? Um, so I remember that. But also what I would say to leadership is if you do not attend these sessions, it's a powerful message. And I, you know, I'm going to confront you with that. And you, know, you can still choose not to go. But when you don't go, you are saying that it's not really that important. And so you need to be there. And you need to encourage highly, not mandate, but, say, but look. Leadership knows how to highly encourage without mandating, right? Other people in leadership. But when the leaders don't go because they don't need it and they're beyond it, not only, of course, aren't things not going to change, but you then leave the people who do show up to do this thing they often do, which is, well, we can't do anything because leadership's not here. Now, you know, that's my job to push on that. Uh, because it's, it is a form of kind of externalizing and putting responsibility somewhere else, but you certainly handed it to them by not showing up. So that, that's the conversation I would have. Like, if we're really going to invest these resources, you need to be there. Yeah. And also this, uh, this idea of, um, you know, uh, yesterday my um, business partner sent me an article about this woman who had written about, she's a, uh, a black woman writing about criticism of all white anti-racist spaces, sort mm -hmm. of like Surge and others. Yeah. And saying that um, even the idea of having an all white anti-racist space is problematic. And I'm curious for your thoughts on that, if you've experienced that or how that, because I, I know yeah. racial caucusing is valuable uh, in some places. And so how do you sort of balance that with like, yeah. yeah. Well, this is where um, it's a both end. So, there's no clean space in which to do this work because there's no space outside of uh, the water of white supremacy, right? The water of institutionalized racism. So 
even as I stand in front of a group, my goal is to interrupt whiteness, but I am reinforcing whiteness. I mean, I'm clear about that. But to not use that position in that way for me is to really uphold whiteness because we so rarely use our positions in those ways. So it, again, it is a both end that I try to be transparent about. Um, and, and what guides me is, okay, Robin, try to get it as right as you can as often as you can, by as many as you can, and then know that you cannot get this right by everybody. So while there are some people of color who will critique an all white space, I know there's lots of people of color who will say, you white people need to be doing your own work with yourselves in addition to coming together. If it's the only way I engage, I think it's problematic. But I do believe there has to be a space, or, or at least that it's a very effective tool to have a space where we're free from the worry of harming. We're also free from actually harming because a lot of microaggressions happen when you bring uh, white people, people of color together, where we can, I think about it as get in better shape for coming together kind of till the soil, if you will, um, in the same way that people of color have work to do that's not our work and not really even our business, but they, they in the same way that if we're, if we're looking at patriarchy and certainly men need to be working with each other, women also need to be working with how they collude with patriarchy, right? And how we've been shaped by it. So um, I guess I would just try to be as accountable as I could, but I will not not do affinity groups. Yeah. So it sounds like if you were going to surge and other groups in order to feel good about how anti-racist you are, that's like the, a problem. Uh, and so if it's balanced perhaps with, you know, authentic learning and understanding in collaboration and genuine relationship with people of color. Yes. Feel, yeah. And it, and in what ways is surge accountable, right? I mean, there mm -hmm. isn't any way you're going to have surge or any other white group and in the group not be reinforcing patterns. It's, this is my critique of mindfulness. Sorry. I, yeah. I just, anything that white people love, it should be a red flag. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so mindfulness seems to be the, the new thing, but you're asking me to use my mind, which is, a mind that's been colonized and, you know, white supremacist mind to identify white supremacy. I can do some of that, but I will necessarily reinforce things. And honestly, I'm invested in not seeing my collusion with racism. Of course I'm invested in not seeing it. This is why I can't rely on only myself. I'm going to miss pieces. Um, so how, how are, we setting up those meetings to account for that and then how are we being accountable to people of color one of the ways i did it at an organization that i used to be co-director of equity for was after the white affinity group the facilitators met with the facilitators of the people of color affinity group and then we were very transparent here's what happened here's how we approached it what did we miss and then they would guide us and they would say either oh, yeah, you, why'd you approach it like that? Here's what you missed. Or, okay, great, stay with it. That was how, you know, short of having them in the room, which, of course, then is no longer a white caucus, uh, that's how we tried to be accountable.
Here's another little bit of a curveball for you is oh. um, <laughs> I'm in the Bay Area, you're in Seattle. Um, gentrification is rampant. So how do you say to white people who genuinely want to be in community with more people of color, say in their neighborhood and, and sort of move to that without gentrifying and pushing out people of color? Have you, have you had any good answers on that one? No, I, I've seen, I've seen lists, you know, good lists. I, I may even have one on my website of like ways to, to be, um, to gentr to be a gentrifier that lands less problematically. Right. Because I actually don't think most white people gentrifying, um, formerly people of color neighborhoods want to have community with people of color. I think they're excited about the equity uh, potential right. because it's becoming more white. Let, and let's be honest. But if you do, um, then how do you support the businesses there? You know, how do you build um, relationships there? Are you willing to send your children to the schools there and change the way the schools uh, are actually functioning, right? But even as I say it, I feel a little nervous, right? Because I've certainly read critiques about, are we trying to make ourselves feel better? Um, but th that's a really tough one, right? I mean, we exist. <laughs> uh, we have to live somewhere. Uh, and yet here's this really problematic setup. So um, I don't have an easy answer to it. Yeah, I'd like those, to those tech companies you're working with to stop paying so highly. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, also, right, yeah. um, black and indigenous people uh, and Latinos are profoundly underrepresented in those tech companies, right? So that would be another really important question. What am I doing to change that? And I th here's something I really want your listeners to understand that is a kind of a realization I've been having by working with tech companies where the overwhelming majority are very young. And that is this idea that niceness is, is anti-racist, that friendliness, that being completely fine having coworkers of color is really all that it takes. And these young white people these employees are dumbfounded at how much pain their coworkers of color are in. They have no idea. I mean, they're friendly. They're saying hi in the cafeteria. By the way, with all the cafeteria workers are brown people, black and brown. So there's all this other subtext going on that's reinforcing white supremacy. But they have no idea how much pain their coworkers are in. And I think it's because white employees cannot answer the question, what does it mean to be white? So if I have no critical thinking and no awareness of what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means to be not white. I can't bear witness to an alternative experience and that actually creates a hostile environment. Again, I'm thinking of a hostile environment must mean openly mean. No, obliviousness creates a hostile environment because they people of color can't be authentic and you can't handle it because you have no skills. Uh, you can't even take it in what they're talking about. And that means those employees of color have to work incredibly hard to keep you comfortable because they know you can't handle being uncomfortable and that conscious or not, if you get racially uncomfortable as a white person, they're probably going to pay a price for that. 
they're going to be punished in some kind of way that you're not aware of. Maybe you withdraw. I feel really uncomfortable. They, they pointed out a microaggression I did in the meeting, and now I just want to avoid them. That, I, I get it. I'd want to avoid them too, but then you're actually punishing them. So this is the atmosphere those coworkers are operating in, and it's an incredible psychic drain, right? Um, and we wonder why they don't stay. And then we kind of just say, well, we come up with stories like, well, there's so few of them that they're so desirable that they were seduced away by better pay, right? I mean, those are great stories for us um, <laughs> because they, they absolve us of responsibility. But over and over, people of color have said to me, if I'm happy in the workplace, you're not going to entice me away, right? Like, like that that's matters. You did something really powerful recently on a podcast. I guess, I don't know how recent it was, but you actually apologized on behalf <laughs> of white people, um, which I was like, wow, you can do that. And I know it's dangerous to even think like <laughs> that, that seems like a very dangerous assumption to make, but I think the way you used it in that specific scenario was, you know, maybe I, if you know the exact instance I'm talking about or. Well, I mean, I've certainly said it before. So if I, if I am talking to a person of color, I mean, and we, we kind of get into this, I, I will just say, on behalf of my people, I apologize. It's not you, it's us. It, it's to speak to the gaslighting, right? Because we, we so rarely ever um, admit, right? So when I'm giving a talk and I am focusing on the white people who mostly, if I'm in an organization, are going to be overwhelming majority of that group, one of the things that I will say is that I hope this is useful for the people of color here today is that I'm going to name and admit to things that white people will rarely ever name and admit to. And I hope that helps with the crazy making, which is a term that I'm trying not to use in terms of political correct language. I hope that helps with the gaslighting, right? Um, and often it does. So my, my apologizing is, is meant to say, uh, acknowledge that this is, this is real and it is coming from us. It's not you. It doesn't mean it doesn't, you don't play a part, right? Again, that's people of color's work. Uh, we all collude in different ways, but ultimately the responsibility for white supremacy and racism is, is white people's responsibility. Uh, and in that, I'm just trying to own the reality of it. And so, you know, moving into the last five minutes, I think one of the whitest questions you probably get is, what can I do? <laughs> and, yes. um, and I've heard a great um, retort to that is, don't ask what you can do, ask what you've done. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know what I say? Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while because I really don't like that question. Uh, I find it disingenuous. Um, I could lay out 10 things. Most listeners are not going to do any of them. But if I don't lay out those 10 things, that will be the reason why they dismissed the talk because it didn't tell them what to do. What would you do about any other topic that you got your interest peaked on? What would you do? You would go look it the hell up, right? So, you know, put some skin in the game and go look it up because it's out there. But my response to that question is, well, how have you managed not to know? It's 2019. Why would that be your question? <laughs> how have you managed to be a full, educated, professional adult and not know what to do about racism? Right? 
so I'm trying to do, do two things with that. One is kind of push back, you know, and, and say, um, push back and challenge this idea of white racial innocence. But at the same time, it is a sincere question, because if you took out a piece of paper and wrote down why you don't know what to do, um, you'd have your map of what to do and nothing on it would be easy or quick, but it would probably start with I wasn't educated on this. Okay, well, that's, there you go. It's 2019. <laughs> Lots of fantastic. There's a book called White Fragility. Yeah, there's one, <laughs> but also please read yeah. works of people of color. And I've tried yes. to name some of those. Um, two, I don't talk about this with other white people. I don't have cross-racial relationship. Those things are all going to be on the list. And, and if you could be really honest, I haven't cared enough. Okay. I couldn't live with that. So I'd have to do something. But again, there it is. And nothing is quick or easy, but nothing will be deeper or more rewarding either. So there are many lists on my website under the resource tab, 18 things, 10 things. Um, the information is out there for a lot of white people. The mere act of looking it up is actually uh, breaking through the apathy of whiteness, whiteness. So <laughs> yeah, go look you, it up. Can you uh, tell folks website and like any you know, upcoming events or anything folks should know about? Um, um, I'm not so sure about upcoming events. Um, there are some conferences, like the, there's a white privilege conference. Um, I think it's a fantastic conference and um, it's, you know, three days and thousands of people to focus on white supremacy and how it gets reproduced. And there's film shows and affinity groups and um, sessions just for people of color and all of it. It's, it's pretty great. You can look it up, white privilege conference. Um, my website is robindiangelo.com. D'Angelo is D-I. Uh, we just finished a, a reader's guide for the book, and it's really good. I'm excited by it because it even has how to facilitate the inevitable dynamics that come up when you go to talk about the book. So it's not just questions about the book, but also how to facilitate. I'm going to post that on my website in the next couple days. I don't know. I, I, most of what I'm doing these days um, is contracted privately, but uh, when universities bring me in, then those are, those are public. So Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to say to the listeners, I really appreciate Robin. She's a, a leader in the space, always holding up others, um, but also sort of like forging the path uh, forward. And so just wanted to say thanks for, for coming on, Robin, and um, continue doing what you do. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.